Welcome to the Elevate podcast, brought to you by the Registered Master Builders. Each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us get the best from our businesses, our teams, and ourselves. I'm your host, Ryan Castle. We talk to experts, advocates, and business owners in the construction industry to share their knowledge, insights, and experiences to help you build a better business and enjoy a better life. Now let the business building begin. Today on the Elevate Master Builders podcast, I am joined by Daryl Trigg, owner of Trigg Construction, along with his wife, Marlene. Today, we talk about possibly the most complex build ever in the history of New Zealand. Imagine a building that has no two things the same, not a single window the same, not a balustrade the same, not even a tile the same. And one of the underlying philosophies is everywhere you look, it must look different. This is an amazing journey that took 30 years from concept to build and what's been achieved by the Trig Construction team and the community of Whangarei is truly exceptional. You are in for a treat. Daryl, welcome along to the Elevate Master Builders podcast. You are a former guest and we've got you back again, but we've got you on a whole different topic today. Welcome along. Yeah, thanks very much, mate. It's a real pleasure to be part of it again. Oh, it is, and we'd like to say thank you for the contribution you've made to the Master Builders community right across the, the board. And I think in today's conversation, Daryl, you'll be able to share a lot of good insights for our uh, members. Uh, you've been involved in a stellar project in the far north of New Zealand, up in Whangarei, in the Huntavosa Arts Centre. Wow, this has been a project that has been really uh, significant for the community, and we'll talk a bit about that. But I understand it, it took about 30 years from conception to you putting some um, footings down, is that right? Yeah, look, it's it's one of these projects that's just been absolutely polarising for the community. Um, I think not so, supposedly because it's art and, and art is, is there to create a conversation and this certainly has done that. Um, the then Mayor Stan Seminoff 30 years ago invited um, Hundavasa, who's living in the Bay of Islands. So Hundavasar is an Austrian um, artist. Um, some people think he's an architect, but he's an artist um, and based out of Vienna, and he's just a rock star in, uh, right throughout Europe. Um, his um, MO, I suppose, um, from an architect point of view or from a building point of view is he was all about nature and being in tune with nature. So um, all his paintings and all that, you know, for example, he would paint a painting and then he'd take it out the back of his property in, um, in the Bay of Islands and sit it in a tree and just sit back and watch it for blooming hours to see if it was in harmony. And if it wasn't, he'd scrap it um, or he'd keep it and um, and produce it. So, you know, put it out there. So it's very much everything was in tune with nature and the rawness and the uniqueness and the randomness of nature. And that comes through in his, in his buildings. So, you know, he believed that um, that why should buildings be square and true and straight um, and level and plumb and all the rest of it like they are, you know, like modern architecture is, um, when nature's not like that. Yeah. How dare we? It's like that because they're easier to build, aren't they, Daryl? Damn right. It's a little bit too predictable, but um, yeah, certainly building this was, was something that um, was so far removed from anybody's um, 
trade skills or, or whatever that you've built up over the years. Um, so it was it was a great project. So take us on a bit of a timeline. Thirty years ago, the Mayor Stan Seminoff was that correct? Correct. Um, yes. Yep. So tell us how we got from Stan the into the involvement with Huntervossa, how it got concepted, and then maybe a bit of a, a journey through those those thirty years to how we got to Trig being the principal build partner on it. Thirty years ago, the the then Mayor Stan Seminoff invited Huntervossa to come and choose a building in Whangarei um, to what you'd call repurpose, to Hundavasara. And um, and that was the whole thing. So he'd take buildings that he called architecturally handicapped um, and and um, bring, breathe new life into them. And um, so he chose a building down at the Whangarei Town Basin and um, drew essentially a sketch on the back of a napkin. And um, from there, I think it was so polarising that it ebbed and flowed to points where it, there was a public, a binding public referendum. Um, it was half the people loved it and half the people absolutely hated it with a vengeance. There was death threats to people that supported it. It was just absolutely polarising. Crazy. You know, and because it's art, right? But essentially where it, where it really started to gather some momentum was in the later years, um, the the project was it had stalled. There was a binding referendum which gave it the go ahead from the council because a lot of the councillors didn't want a part of it either because it was so polarising and they get voted out. There was a binding referendum, then there was a dedicated bunch of of local business people that got together and essentially raised twenty seven million dollars in two years in Whangarei. Amazing. So a mixture of anything from sausage sizzles to philanthropists like. So Michael Hill, uh, lots of people got involved with it, um, that they could see the benefit of it. Government funding um, from successive governments, so from both national and um, Labor, um, has supported it. And they got across the mark and the project got going. Unfortunately um, for the project, just with that building, so it was a building right down in the town basin area of Whanganei, with the new earthquake code and new engineering standards and all that, that building couldn't be left behind and used. Um, but in the true intent of um, Hundavasa's vision about repurposing a building, it's probably about 90% of it was recycled and reused in the uh, new building. Right. Amazing. And yeah. Daryl, give us a bit of context for Trig Construction for those of you that, or the listeners that don't know you. Can you just tell us a little bit about your your organisation, um, what you're focused on, uh, what are some of your key philosophies, and then maybe bring us together how that melded together with the Hunter project? So Trig Construction, we're a, um, a family company. My wife Marlene and I started it. Um, a typical story about the young builder who did his apprenticeship and went out and started building houses and doing all sorts of things and and people started like what we we're doing and we just got um you know a few more people to help us out and um and grew we we changed focus a little bit a few years back into commercial and to solely focusing on commercial because we felt there was a bit of a gap there um in Whangarei and, and sort of lower northland and really repurposed our business to gear it towards um commercial with people, branding, expertise, systems, all of that stuff, with actually a, a express target of uh, getting this job as well. That was one of our, our key points. And, and a key point wasn't just to get it, to get it. It was actually to demonstrate that there is capability to do these complex projects in, in the regions. You know, you, you, you don't have to 
drag the the tier one builders in all the time and just on that we put about 900 people through that site to work and probably 95 percent of them are from northland fantastic yeah we're incredibly proud of that yeah it should be yeah and so so from trig's point of view we've been involved as an avid supporter of it for years um just because whether you like the art or not the concept of having an iconic a globally iconic building in your wee town um, is just a life changer. You know, it's a game changer. So based on that, I, I, I like the art. I think it's great. I think it's bold. It's um, colourful. It's an experience. That's what we set out to get. Time and time again, I get people saying to me, we just had an amazing time there. And that's not even just looking at the, the amazing art in the building. And Daryl, we'll talk about the building itself shortly. I'm curious, how did you go about securing the contract? You know, it is a large scale build. There was a lot of uh, money involved. I'm sure the tier one builders were interested in also having it in the airport portfolio to say, hey, we've also built this. Um, what do you think was key for Trig in winning the business? It was a tendered project, but there was a, a there was a big portion of it which was provisional summed out. And for those who don't understand provisional sum, it's a, it's a amount of money that's set aside to complete certain aspects of a project in its entirety. And so that was all the difficult stuff like the golden cupola the plastering, the tiling, a lot of the wet trades, so some of the real tricky stuff, which was essentially the art, which is really hard to quantify. And then the rest of it, the the client side team provided a, a schedule of quantities. The big focus for us in all of our work is, is innovation. So we, you know, we set out to outsmart everyone else, but we had a big, big um, mantra in our project team was to procure local as much as we can. And as I said, the only two contractors we had were Schindlerlifts from Germany and Brian Perry, who did the piling. Other than that, every other contractor was from Northland. So that was a key point in our tender. I mean, then a whole lot of other smarts around entry and exit to the site and all all sorts of things that we just did that were a lot cleverer that saved the client money um, on the facilities. Um, We had really, really good facilities, which we supplied, we actually built ourselves and Trig own, but we charged a small amount to the client, which ended up being about 25% of what it would cost to hire them for the whole project. You know, so things like that. So it, at every step, we tried to innovate um, and just be smarter than whoever else was tendering. Fantastic, Daryl. And I know you always come with the philosophy of having everybody involved in a construction project as winners, rather than what we often see as very competitive, um, you know, client-led construction company sub-trades all kind of battling and and it end up being a, shall we say, a uh, less than desirable relationship environment. Um, I know you bring that philosophy to the table in every project you work in. On reflection, do you feel like you achieved wins with, you know, the the core client uh, with your business and with your sub-trades? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, in no uncertain terms, it it wasn't a simple job. But, you know, like I think um, firstly, contractually, you've got to make it simple. Well, well, no, not onerous, uh, put it that way. You know, like the the terms and conditions between client and contractor to a certain extent waterfall down. But contractually, if you make it palatable for the subcontractors, um, that side of it, they'd be happy. And then on site, sometimes construction can be a bit tough going. But we had fantastic facilities. We had a big canteen. You know, we had really, really good facilities right throughout the whole site. 
that the guys, when the going was a bit tough, they had a place, a bit of a sort of oasis to retreat to. We set about creating a really good culture. We had a, we got a big old steel barbecue made up and every time we had a milestone like foundations done, floor down, whatever, we'd put on a site-wide barbecue. Every time it was someone's birthday, we put on a site-wide barbecue, just things like that. that um, Is there everyone... all with, with 900 people on site at various stages? There must have been like three barbecues a day. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, it got pretty good. The guys had a pretty good relationship with the Pack and Save team across the road, that's for sure. I bet. You know, a few times you'd, I'd have a chat to the whole team, you know, the wider site team, and just say, look, you guys have got to understand that there's everyone around the world is wanting to be inside this fence and we're the only ones privileged enough to be here. And um, it sort of put it into check sometimes where everyone stopped and thought, well, actually, that's probably right, you know. It's totally. a pretty cool thing to be part of. Yeah, and potentially a once-in-a-lifetime project involvement for many people. You know, you might, may not ever get a chance to do another um, building of that kind of uh, scale and uniqueness. It was Hundavas's last design that he personally designed, so it's a one-off in that respect. But... Um, the, the cost per square metre of this thing, you know, like we spent three and a half years building a two-storey building. So we're either really slow or it's really complex, you know, so there will never, ever be another opportunity like this because it was so cost-heavy, but it just had to be like that to be an original. In the show notes for the podcast, we'll put some links so people can go and have a look and, of course, encourage people to go and visit regardless of where you are in the country. Um, I think as a anyone involved in construction, you'd be able to have a deep appreciation for just how complex this project was, but also what an amazing outcome has been achieved. So, Daryl, let's turn our attention to the building itself. I know uh, Hunter was uh, one of his posters says, you are a guest of nature, behave. Um, I yep. love that as a, as a sentiment. Can you talk to us about how, from a construction perspective and maybe the design of the building, how does it go about in, encompassing that uh, nature aspect? He has a lot of rules, the Hundavasa Code, by which his buildings are adhered to. One of them is the building follows the hands of its creators. So when you get to applying the art, like the tiles and all the rest of it, that's up to the tiler and the and the um, bricklayers and all that. They they can't create a repetitive pattern, an image, or make it look man-made and or symmetrical because that's not how nature is. Um, if you pick, um, say, two tortilla trees, if you're walking through the bush, you have a look at them. They won't be identical so the branches won't be at a meter centers and the trunks won't be 200 diameter all the way they'll look similar but they're not identical so that whole building has to be like that so one of his um his code or rules is if you're in a place or in a space like a this room that room the next room outside you can't look around and see the same thing twice so that means that no two windows are the same no two doors are the same no two door handles are the same so apart from sprinkler heads and all that any compliance stuff the form and fabric of the building is totally bespoke so every day you get up you're not doing something that you've done before virtually when you sort of think about it you think well and once you get into that mindset that really starts to drive it. Because every window was different, we had two carpenters for six months just building window formwork. That was their job for six months, you know, to stick in the concrete walls, to pour around. So whole lots of challenges like that. You just wouldn't get on any other job. Daryl, I can just about hear some of our listeners uh, virtually running away from this podcast because of the complexity that must be involved when they're going, what, no two windows were the same? How do you even, how do you order that? How do you build it? Uh, it must have 
presented some really unique challenges uh, for you. Uh, you were having to comply with the uh, Hunter Vossa Foundation, who oversees you know the building and making sure that it's true to design and their code. And then you know, virtually here, our listeners going, man, I struggle to get consents through council when they're for a nice square plum. Everything's the same. It's all done to to code, and they've got lots of reference points. Talk to us about what that was like for you managing the uh, requirements of the foundation, and then also working with council, etc., to make sure this was all compliant. That was a real challenge, right? So, um, but I think I've got to take my hat off to the the foundation um, and Yoram Harrell, who's who heads it um, in Vienna. If they didn't doggedly stick to their guns, um, we wouldn't have the building we have today. So they really protected his IP and that, to, you know. So that was one thing. So we would we would at times we were sending um, photographic and video footage up daily and they approve it and give us the go-ahead to carry on or pull it out and start again. So there was lots of things that had to get past them. They had no skin in the game financially, but but sort of form fabric-wise, it was all about what they had approved. They had a, a on-site representative, Richard Smart, absolutely fantastic, you know, really, really good, really helpful, gave us good guidance. Working with the council, that was absolutely fantastic. You know, like we said right from the start, um, we've always had a good relationship with them, you know, with the building team and that. We sort of included them in, in our wider subcontract team. So all of our comms out to our subcontractors included the council. Like the whole floor's undulating, right? So because the forest floors is not even, why should a building floor be? We deserve that, that sensation of unevenness. Vienna would send over contour plans on how they want the building to flow when you're walking through it. We'd have to draw them out on the floor, put some height pegs in, get them to approve it, then pour concrete to, to these sort of different undulations. Uh, and then the tilers would come through and tile it. But you can imagine if you've got visually impaired people or blind or people in wheelchairs and you've got this floor that's all over the show, we'd get the count, uh, the council inspectors down there, their team, and it's just a matter of having a scrum, you know, like we, we're obviously sympathetic to the fact that this thing has to be code compliant and there are certain levels like crossfalls on footpaths that are allowed that are sloping uh, to a certain amount. And they were sympathetic to the fact that we had this hundred of us building to build. And you just keep talking about it and come up with ways to satisfy both. And then we could move on and then it would be signed off. So we spent a heck of amount of time with them, basically chewing the fat, talking about it. This is what we've got to achieve. At one stage, we were talking to the hood of us, uh, the Vienna guys were saying, look, it's got to be like this. And we're saying, well, we can't do that. You know, we'd send an email back. We can't do that. It's our building code. It's our law. So next day, there'd be an email from them. Well, just ring your government and change the law. And <laughs> no it's serious. Full on. And that's, that's how dogged they were. But the, but the proof's in the pudding, you know, like the building's absolutely amazing because of it. And you just work through it. Right, sure. we come to an amicable solution that Vienna's happy with. It complies and, and it really meets the brief of the project. Uh, classic components of, yeah, I guess, all relationships, but certainly one in such a complex construction environment is uh, keep people included and communicate often. And if you do, if you do that, you you know you won't get a perfect outcome every time. But uh, people do uh, come together. They're starting to to work. They're looking towards a common goal. Uh, if you do, if you do that, uh, keep them included and communicate often. Yeah, and and I think the other thing, the other key point, I suppose, that we we talked about within our team is actually be sympathetic to their to their part of it. So if, just if you pick the council, 
their role is to ensure that the it's safe for the public to to navigate around and interact within and if there's a emergency safe for them to get out so we, we have to put ourselves in their shoes and understand that um that they have a role to play and and we want to help them out and if we butted heads against them it's just going to go nowhere so if we listen and understand and hear their point and then work towards getting to that but also help them understand the the project's point um, everyone went out of it. We didn't have any trouble at all. We just all got on and did. And that was a key point, I think. If, if you're sympathetic to the other party, you go a, a lot further and a lot quicker. Stand in the shoes of the person you're talking to and, and try and take their perspective. It's, great to, it's a great perspective to have. Yeah, well um, said. Now, Daryl, you are someone I know to be an exceptionally positive person. Um, we've had you know, many great conversations and you've always bring uh, positivity and exuberance. There must have been a moment during this project where you were head in hands uh, going, shaking, shaking your head. Was, was there a time? And if it was, what was, the, what was the moment or the situation that caused the, you know, a bit of head shaking or a bit of head scratching? I think if you talk to the guys on site, it was just about every day. But um, I don't know, sometimes it was frustrating. I mean, sometimes um, the politics of politics can be frustrating. Project itself and the work was definitely challenging, without a doubt. Um, But sometimes the politics can get in the way of a real good project, you know. That stuff was frustrating. But I think within our team, you know, like the guys and the wider team, the subcontractors, everyone bought into it. But there was a really, really good culture on site and everyone enjoyed what they were doing, albeit hard. Sure. and challenging and difficult. Um, I think everyone knew they were doing something that was absolutely special. And one day it was all going to be over and we could all stand back quite proudly and have a look at it. But there's nothing that really sort of sticks out as exceptionally, you know. Um, COVID came along. I mean, everyone's had experiences with that, but we just worked through it. The wider construction industry worked hard during that period to get everyone back on deck quickly with good good safety protocols and all that. Master builders were instrumental in working with that with, with some of the other industry players and that and issued a whole lot of protocols. Uh, we implemented them all on site and just got back into gear. And Daryl, what would be your favourite aspect of the of the building? And it might be something that you can't even see because it's it's in behind a facade or it's in the uh, structure. Um, but do you have a favourite a favourite element of the building? When we set out on this project, there was a study group that shot over to Vienna and that was absolutely critical to understanding what we were trying to achieve. What I took away from that is we were out to, what we were trying to build was an experience. I can quite honestly say you'll go there one, two, 10, 50, 100 times and you will always see something that you haven't seen previously. Uh, What I'm mostly proud of, I think, uh, apart from, you know, all the people that were involved for that, it's just the smaller details. Like I could say, if you walk around that building, just at ground level, you'll find a kiwi, a waka, a whale, a kauri tree, a snow angel, um, a scaffolder's wrench. Some of them are obvious. A lot of them aren't. It'll take you ages to find them. To this extent that the day we pulled the fence down when we were all finished early last year, um, I found a snow angel on one corner of the building that I'd never seen before, and I'd be right. going there every week. The, the balustrades, like it, everything is just challenges your thinking. Because if you go back to that comment I made that when you're in a space, you can't look around and see the same thing twice. So all of them are bent slightly differently or welded slightly differently. None of them are the same. So each little bit of 
12 millimetre by 12 millimetre steel vertical is different to the whole rest of them, but they still have to comply with the code and have no more than a 100 mil gap between them. It's real smart, you know, it's very smart. There's lots of things like that that just you walk around and you're just like, wow, look at that, wow, look at that, wow, look at that. Just some of the skills that the guys have got, the, the spiral stairs, but you know, boxing and pouring a round spiral staircase over two to three levels um, is just something that no one will ever do again because it's just way too expensive. But on this building, it was the only way you could do it. And Daryl, you, you mentioned earlier that it was a polarising project for the community, uh, not only design-wise, but the amount of uh, money that was being committed to it, et cetera. Have you had an experience of someone that uh, was vocally opposed to it pre-building and now that they've seen it and they've seen it constructed and they've seen what it's done for the community, they've changed their view? Yeah, look, without a doubt, several times. Um, a favourite thing of mine to do is just to go and sort of loiter with intent around that on a weekend and just sit down or we go, you know, down there and people uh, just ask you what it is if they're out of town and I don't tell them who we are and what we had to do with it. You just talk to them about it. Well, beforehand, um, a lady stopped me in the street and said, with all, she, I knew her and she said, with all due respect to you and your team, I hate that building. I said, that's fantastic. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's art. If everyone loved it, we wouldn't be doing our job. But what actually happened was I started explaining to her about kind of us's philosophy about nature and why the building's like it is. And she said, hmm, that makes a lot more sense now. People sort of took a bit of time to understand why it's like it is. Then you could appreciate why it's like it is. Because I think people just, because it's different, it's not mainstream, and that's just talks to how channeled our thinking's been generationally to accept stuff. You'd appreciate it more. And, and we've had we've had this weird friends recently, and Marlene was talking to some people outside, and they said the same thing. They said this is hideous, and she started talking to them about what, a, why, and they began to love it. Oh, and also once they understand that the ratepayers haven't paid for it, they all love it as well. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Oh, that's uh, that's brilliant. There's such good uh, insights there, there, Daryl. It's you've been truly an epic uh, build for you. Is it a legacy for Trick? Is it a legacy for you? Do you feel like it's a legacy for the community? What's your what's your opinion? Well, I, I think what we're most proud of, like definitely um, for our team to be able to produce this is definitely, you know, an amazing milestone. You know, it's a career high for us. And I think, as I said, what we're most proud of is that it was 95% Northland companies. And I'm not knocking companies from out of town. I think it's just that there's an amazing set of skills in Northland and, and lots of other provincial New Zealand, right, that we're incredibly proud of that. I think it's a game changer for Whangarei and for Northland. Whangarei's never, ever been on the radar for the cruise ship industry, and it is definitely now firmly in these sites. Uh, Pre-COVID lockdown four in 2020, there was 14 cruise ships confirmed to stop to come and have a look at this. Right. And and they go straight from Pai here to Auckland otherwise. So it's a game changer in, in many ways. Um, for our team, obviously, you, you know, if you take the project as a whole, there's never going to be another one like it. Um, just, uh, the, you know, there may be, who knows, um, they, you know, the, the one in Kawakawa that they did was just equally as, as um, amazing, you know, the new um, uh, centre up there. And so there, there may be other ones, but I don't think to this extent, this is a big project. But if you think about, uh, you know, if you think what's next, um, we've just gone on to a big 
um, bulk store down by the port, um, which is a big old square building. And I think it was a little bit refreshing for the guys, but they're ready for another challenge because, you know, we had apprentices fitting door, uh, uh, natural timber carry doors in a curved wall. Um, you know, and you just don't do that every day. So, um, but I just, I just sort of think if you break it down into those wee components, you know, from a legacy perspective, we've got 900 people that have got skills that they're never going to get the chance to get anywhere else in their career. But what it does is it sets you up with that thinking to just think outside the square, pardon the pun, um, but just think outside of the norm to start problem solving. And I think that's a really, really good skill to have. Brilliant, Daryl. And when you're you know, sitting on that bench outside the Hantavosa and reflecting on what you've been involved with there, uh, if you were to describe one emotion that it makes you feel, what would it be? Um, just amazement, like wonderment. Like I, I always think it's just about like that that Disneyland fever, you know, where you go in there and you're just looking around at everything. Going, wow, look at that. Wow, look at that. There's so many facets to it that challenge what you do, you know, and, and you don't have to be a builder. Like we're constant, I'm constantly getting texts from people and messages from people saying, we've been there for the weekend with our kids and it was absolutely incredible. And it's that type of building because the building is an experience. The wider Māori Art Centre and the Contemporary Māori Art Collection, I think it's the largest co- collection of contemporary Māori art in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, so, the, the, within the building, and it's got Hundavasa's only um, artworks outside of Vienna in the world globally. So you think of the Louvre, you think of all these, and and this is in Whangarei, right? So if you if you just park the building um, for a minute, the, the the contents of the building and the art is just outstanding on its own, you know. But then when you put in the fact that there's over three thousand plants and one hundred and fifty trees on the roof of this building that you can get to walk through as a garden. It's just, it's a whole other kettle of fish, you know, absolutely amazing. And that's, that really is truly, I think, just the wonderment of the experience. So maybe we've got some listeners and they've got a uh, couple of apprentices complaining on site about uh, it's a bit tough. Maybe they should take their team up to the Hunter and go, hey, you reckon what we're building is tough? We'll measure what it was like building this one. Absolutely. I mean, just on so many levels, if you just think about the tiling, you know, the tiling, uh, from what I understand, tiling's around about an hour a square metre. This was six to seven hours a square metre, you know, so everything was just exponentially tougher. Or, or, or trickier, you know. It just took us so much longer, you know. So in in a in a day, you've just sort of got through a bit over a square meter of tiling. And you when know. you're apply, trying to apply those tiles to a curved wall and none of your tiles can be the same size or, or shape, you can see how that uh, gets tricky and demanding, but then the resulting effect from what's created right, is very special. Yeah, yeah, and the, but the, the, the wall's not only curved when you look down on it, it's also undulating when you rub your hand up over it. So every surface, there's no flat surfaces either. So nothing's, you know, like it just challenges everything that you're like, wow, how did that, you know, geez, look at that. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really cool thing to go and have a look at. Obviously, with every building, um, the finish belies the work that hides behind it. But, um, you know, but that's just part of it. But I think um, you can't paint a painting without 
the underlying canvas revealing itself. And that's sort of what, you know, like Vienna had to sign off the structure before we started um, applying the art, I suppose, before we started plastering, tiling and all the finishes and all that. We had to do some test areas that they had to approve, but they had to do a walkthrough of the structure, which was done by video because of COVID. They were going to come over and physically walk it and sign it off. But that whole structure had to be signed off before we could start the next stage. You know, that that level of detail. So, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, look, uh, Daryl, congratulations to you and your team. Uh, I know you're not someone who uh, seeks to do these things for recognition or award, uh, although it is worth noting that you have won a couple of uh, awards around this this project. Do you want to yes. can, you, can can you brag for a moment? I know it's not your thing, but go on, brag for a brag for a couple. I, I think the the New Zealand Commercial Project Awards is one that we really wanted to enter because it celebrates the effort of the team. Any project or any any business doesn't run without people so we, we entered with um the architects the client project managers our team you know like the whole mob of us and um we went down we took our wider team down so there was i think 16 of us went down to christchurch um for the evening and um we were really fortunate to be awarded a gold award which says that you're you scored over 90 percent of the 2000 points uh it's really really hard to get and um we were also um, awarded the special award, which is something from what I understand that it's a, it's an award that the judges give for something that's just next level that they can't really put their finger on it. I suppose it doesn't fit into any other category, uh, which is certainly this building. I mean, you can't just put it into a shoebox and say, well, we can give it one of those, you know. Um, so, yeah, so it was, it was it was amazing. You know, we're really privileged to be part of it. We're really thankful to the judges and the competition for coming and having a having a look at it and experiencing it and, and them seeing their way clear to um, award it. So it's a, it's a great pat on the back for the wider team. And Daryl, I feel like you've just exhibited the uh, values of leadership that you uh, exhibit so well. Um, I asked you to brag for a moment and you immediately talked about the team and you even thanked the judges. So um, I think that's that's a great, yeah, a great exhibition of your leadership uh, style and why you've been able to bring a team together to deliver such a complex, complex project with that kind of uh, approach to leadership. So um, Daryl, thank you so much for sharing your insights around this project. Absolutely fascinating. Would absolutely encourage everyone from around the country and globally to come and come visit this because people literally are coming from around the globe to, to see it. We have this treasure in our own country. Uh, get there, visit it. We'll put some links in the podcast show notes so people can easily access details about how to get there and what they're uh, in for. Uh, but any closing words from you, Daryl? Oh, look, just go and enjoy the experience. I mean, one thing that took me a long time to find was there's a little bird's nest that the Guys are made out of clay tiles sitting on a windowsill with some marble eggs in it. That's going to be there forever. Go and find it. Okay. And yeah. and is there a uh, is there a prize when we find it and, and give you a call and go, hey, we found it? Yeah, give me a ring. Give me <laughs> okay, a ring. We'll, we'll do that. Hey, thanks, Daryl. Appreciate you. All good, mate. Thanks a lot.